So we want to welcome you today. If you have logged in for the first time, we are so grateful that you have joined us. And as Pedro mentioned, we would want to encourage you and invite you to come and join us at the Emirates Park Zoo once this isolation is over, that you would come and worship with us. And if we could be of any help to you at this time, if we could minister to you at this time, if we could pray for you at this time, please contact us and share your prayer requests with us. Well, today is what is traditionally called Good Friday, and we are going to look at one of the, the last sayings that Jesus spoke while He was nailed to the cross moments before He died. And Scripture records only seven brief sayings from the Savior on the cross, and each of these sayings are rich with significance, and every one of them reveal that Christ remained sovereignly in control, even as he died on the cross. And these precious words explain exactly why Jesus came into this world, and why he did what he did, and why he died as he died. So let's go to the cross of Christ this morning and learn afresh his comfort and his care and his concern for us. Please read with me from Matthew chapter 27. Our passage this morning is from verse 45 to verse 46. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to verse 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they came into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, if you are like me, I'm sure that the social distancing is making you feel very lonely. So many of us have been cut off totally, separated from our loved ones without much warning. And conferences have been cancelled. The Expo 2020 in Dubai was rescheduled. Even the Olympics has been rescheduled to next year. But I think in a more personal way, schools have been closed. Graduations have been cancelled. Weddings have been cancelled. Family vacations have been cancelled. And so many birthdays have had to be celebrated in, in isolation. Children who won't be able to share their cake with their friends or share their cupcakes on their, their birthdays. They're being cut off, feeling 
forsaken is indeed a, a horrible thing. And for many, the greatest form of torture is to be alone with themselves. And that is why we see people entertaining themselves with, with medication or distraction or, or noise. It can be hard to know how to deal with this loneliness. But this pandemic only highlights what has been true. God knows by experience the sorrow of this world through the life of His Son, Jesus. Our great high priest both sympathizes with us and intercedes for us when we look to Jesus. We are, we are reminded today, and we're reminded when we look at the cross, that God loves us and is working for our good. And the cross of Christ is the powerful declaration that God not only sees you, but that he, is, that he is with you. His fourth saying on the cross shows us that Jesus understands the pain that we experience when we are separated from our loved ones. For there came a time as he hung on that cross that he was cut off, that he was separated from his Father in heaven. And Jesus' fourth saying from the cross has been recorded for us here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, which says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But before we study this, this verse, let's, let's observe the context. The gospel writers' accounts here reveal that Jesus' death took more than six hours. It began at nine o'clock in the morning on that Good Friday when his hands and, and feet were nailed to the, the wooden beams. And then sometime during the next three hours between 9 a.m. and 12 noon, he spoke the first of his three sentences, which were, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then the second one, today you shall be with me in paradise. And then the third one, woman, behold your son. Well, not long after that third statement at about noon, our text for today says that darkness fell over the whole land. And as this darkness fell over the whole land, an eerie silence surrounded the, the hillside of Golgotha. Now understand, when Matthew talks about darkness, he wasn't saying that the, the skies became overcast and the sun was, was setting, or there was an eclipse of the, the sun. No, th this was nothing natural that was happening at this point in time. This was, this was supernatural. The sun was obscured by a supernatural act of God. And this didn't just affect Golgotha. The Bible says that this darkness fell over the whole land. It wasn't just on that hilltop. In other words, midnight came... At midday, and it was a deep darkness, darker than even the, the darkest night. I don't think you could see your hand in, in front of your, your face. I don't think the, the stars of the, the moon were, were visible. It was as if the light of the world had gone out. It wasn't an ordinary darkness. I imagine the, the Roman soldiers scrambled to find torches to help them to see so that they could complete their, their gruesome duty that they were to perform. 
It was very dark. It was very dark. This supernatural darkness was a, a symbol of God's judgment on their sin, on the sin of the world. Now, the physical darkness signaled a, a deeper and a more fearsome darkness. In fact, I would say that this darkness had not been seen in the world since the days of Genesis, where the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the earth, the Scripture said. That type of darkness. Well, this thick, airy darkness lasted from noon until about 3 p.m. They seemed to have just stood there terrified or for, for these three hours until Jesus uttered this fourth saying from the cross. And all that could be heard during those hours was, was probably the labored breathing of Jesus and, and the two thieves on the cross next to him as they, as they pushed themselves up and down from, from the cross. Can you picture this scene in your mind? Three hours of this, of this eerie darkness and this eerie silence where no one dared speak a single thing. All they did was stand there and listen and wait and look at those three men dying. And then suddenly, at 3 p.m., out of the depths of that darkness came this, this anguished voice, this anguished sound. Now, most biblical epic films have Jesus saying these words very, very meekly, very softly, barely struggling, really, to get these, these words out of his mouth. But this is not what the Bible says. God's Word teaches us something very differently. It tells us that Jesus' fourth cry from the cross was a, was a thundering cry. And my first point this morning is from the title of my message, A Cry of Anguish. A Cry of Anguish. Look with me at verse 46. Matthew says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. A loud voice. You see, the translation cried out comes from a combination of, of two words. And one means to shout, and it's prefixed with the word up. So it means to shout up, to, to shout or to scream up. In the scriptures, this particular combination of words is used to refer to a, to a scream, a guttural scream or a, or a passionate, loud groan. Do you remember the words of Psalm 22, which were a clear prophecy of this moment? It tells us in Psalm 22 verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from the words of my groaning? That's the word there, groaning, loud, shouting. Now, a literal rendering of this word groaning would be roaring almost, roaring, like the deep reverberating roaring of a lion. Now, if you come to our church on a Friday, normally where we, we meet at the, at the Emirates Park Zoo, just before they, they feed the lions, early in the morning you will hear this, this guttural, reverberating roaring of the lions. It's quite something to hear. You feel it almost in your feet. Well, if you've been close by a lion when it roars, then, then you have a good idea of the picture that is being painted here for us. 
Jesus' fourth cry must have stirred the hearts of these, these men and caused the, the hair to stand up on the backs of their, the necks of these soldiers. And then I also want you to notice that the statement from the cross is first quoted exactly as Jesus would have said it in Aramaic. Notice here, Eli, Eli, Laba, Lama Sabachthani. Now why do you think the Spirit, the Spirit of God inspired Matthew to preserve the original language here that Jesus spoke? Well, Charles Swindle suggests that it's because the language of Jesus' birth captures our attention and, and helps us to, to see just how deep Jesus' anguish was at that moment. How intense of a response this, this really was. Our church is blessed with people from all different nationalities. And one particular lady that I'm thinking of, um, who I won't mention, I won't mention names. Uh, whenever she gets excited about what the Lord is doing in her life, she, she forgets um, she forgets to speak in English. She automatically, by default, starts speaking in her own language. Maybe this has happened to you before. Whenever you get emotional, whenever you are sincerely moved about something, you slip back into your, your native tongue. Well, maybe God has preserved Jesus' words for us in His mother tongue exactly as He said it so that we would read those words and we would get a better understanding of the true isolation of Jesus' soul at this point, so that we would understand better just how forsaken Jesus must have felt while He was on that cross that day. Well, what did that cry mean? What was Jesus saying when He said He was forsaken by God? Of all the words from the cross, this is probably the most difficult to understand. And if you feel confused or baffled by what Jesus said, then, then you're not alone. Charles Spurgeon, he honestly admitted that he himself could not figure this out. Um, it is said that Martin Luther, he once vowed to wrestle with this text until he could explain it, no matter how long it took him. And he focused on this text for days going without food or going without sleep. And finally, he, he stood to his feet and he basically, he gave up saying, God forsaking God, who can understand this? Luther, as wise as a theologian as he was, could not understand how God could forsake his own son. Well, I don't think we can understand how. But I think we can understand why. And that leads me to my second point, which is a cry of desperate separation. You see, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus was separated from His Father. He was forsaken by His Father. All His life, Jesus had known what it was like to, to have this close communion with His Father. He would always, very often, go to a quiet place and he would commune with his father. All his life, Jesus had known what it was like. But he also knew what it was like to be forsaken. Let's not forget that. Not by God, but by other people. Members of his family forsook him for a while. People in his own hometown turned against him. His whole nation had rejected him. As John put it, 
He came into his own, and his own received him not. And then in John chapter 6, it tells us of a time when many of Jesus' followers turned and, and walked with him no more. Even his closest 12 disciples forsook him in his hour of need and fled in panic. So Jesus is not unfamiliar with being forsaken or being abandoned. But up till this point, Jesus had always had his father to turn to. He had always had God that he could commune with. When trouble came, he would go to the mountainside and pray. He would talk with God for hours in these retreats and, and God would minister to him and they would commune together. When others forsook him, when others turned from him, Jesus could always be reassured of the, the fellowship with God. But now it was different. Now as Jesus hung on that cross, even that precious blessing was gone. He had separated himself from Jesus. You know, some have read this text and said that Jesus was not really forsaken by God, that Jesus only felt that way or that he was just quoting Psalm 22, that his experience on this cross inspired him to recite this verse that he had learned as a child. But I, I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that type of interpretation. You see, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, had inspired David to write this psalm hundreds of years before this incident. So he inspired the psalm, not the other way around. Jesus was indeed forsaken by his Father. And one thing that helps us to see this is the different way that Jesus addressed God at this moment. He spoke to his Father three times from the cross. And two of those times, Jesus called him Father. But not this time. This time was different. Now here, Jesus calls him God. It's as if you were to walk to your own father and address him as Mr. rather than Dad or, or Daddy. So there's clearly a separation and alienation that's taken place here. God has forsaken his son. This word that we translate forsaken is the same word that Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, when he said, Do your best to come to me soon, for Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Deserted me, it's the same Greek word. It's a word that means to be abandoned. It's a word that means to be neglected, to be banished, to run away from, to be totally separated. So the question, why would this happen, still needs to be answered. I mean, why would our loving God forsake His own Son? The Father is not a, a fickle, cruel, or, or even simply trying to teach us a, a moral lesson here. Now, the real purpose and the real reason why God had to forsake His Son is because it was punitive. It was punitive. Now, what do I mean by that word, punitive? The word punitive simply means punishment. There was a punishment that had to take place. It's a just punishment for the sin of Christ's people that Jesus was taking on his shoulders here. And while Christ is being punished for the sins of the world, God the Father looks away. He looks away. This made it impossible for our loving but holy God 
to look at his son. Look at 2 Corinthians with me, if you would. In chapter 5, verse, verse 21, it tells us, For our sake, he, talking about God, made him, who is Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 puts it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So what has happened is this. All the sins of humanity have been gathered into one huge pile of evil. And somehow that, that pile has been laid on Jesus. All the, all the lusting, all the idolatry, all the materialism, all the witchcraft, all the greed, all the hatred, all the envy, all the murder, all the child abuse, all the rape, all the prejudice, every sinful thought, every selfish sin of omission, all of it has been laid on Jesus. Try to imagine in your mind at this moment a big pot, a massive pot that's boiling, and every sin that's ever been committed, has been put into this pot and is being distilled into this huge smoking vat of, of poisonous, putrefying brew. And this odor is, is coming out of this pot, a mass of filth so horrible, so revolting that you cannot help but cover your, your face with a, with a handkerchief and look away. I mean... It makes you nauseated and your eyes water. The only thing you can do is turn away. Well, if you can imagine that, if you can imagine that, then you can begin to understand or get an idea of the revulsion that was in the holy heart of God that day as He looked at His perfect Son with the sin of the world upon Him. With the sin of the world upon Him. On the first Good Friday, the one spot of Golgotha was the most hated square foot of area in God's universe. No wonder the Lord had to look away. No wonder God had to turn from His Son. Remember, God is holy. Holy, 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 the Bible says. And a holy God has to judge sin. It has to judge sin. God is perfect in every way. He cannot tolerate sin. Even if that sin is upon His own Son, He cannot ignore it. The fact is God, by His very nature, cannot dwell in the presence of sin. As a result, He turned away. Do you remember the words of God spoken to Adam in the Garden of Eden? God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. If you eat of this fruit, you will die. And what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed? What happened when they sinned? God immediately banished them from the garden. Why? Well, because God and sin cannot dwell together in the same place. It's like trying to mix oil and, and water together or trying to push two magnets with the same poles together. They, they repel each other, isn't it? Well, God and sin 
cannot intermingle. And you, I know, you and I know this firsthand because our own experience has shown us that when we sin, we isolate ourselves from God. I mean, when you do something you, you know God doesn't want you to do, how do you feel? How do you feel? Do you feel like praying? Do you feel like worshiping? Do you feel like singing the praises of, of a holy God when you know that there's sin in your heart, when you knowingly trying to hide your sin? No, of course not. And when we sin, we, we feel isolated. We isolate ourselves. Well, multiply that feeling. Multiply that feeling by billions and billions of times and you begin to understand why Jesus cried out loudly in great desperation. Where are you, God? I can't feel your presence any longer. You know, the truth is Jesus went through hell on that cross because the essence of hell has been cut off from the presence of God, isn't it? Second Thessalonians chapter 1 it talks about people in hell. And it says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Well, that's what Jesus is experiencing here. He's been shut out from His Father's presence. I heard a story recently that broke my heart of a family who had been affected by the coronavirus. The youngest child had been infected by this COVID-19 disease. The doctor told them that the only way they could know, that the only way they could keep the, the rest of the family from, from contracting this disease was to put their sick child in quarantine. Of course, isolated in a hospital room and never let any of their other children or anyone else visit him or, or see him or have contact with him. So with their hearts breaking, they had to carry their three-year-old child and, and leave him in that isolated, lonely hospital room. And they ultimately had to walk out and, and close the door, leaving their child alone while he was crying, Mommy, Daddy, where are you? And the parents said that they, that they knew they were doing what was best for their child. But the worst part for them was walking down the steps of the hospital and hearing their child screaming out, the window, Mommy, Daddy, come back. Why are you leaving me? But they knew they had no choice. They knew the best thing they could do was leave him in isolation, separated from the rest of their family. I mean, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? But it's not completely unrelatable. The incarnate Lord was cut off for the sake of other men and women so that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever. R.C. Sproul, he makes a comment on this passage. He says, At the climax of that period of darkness, Jesus cried in agony. Not the agony of the, the scourging or the agony of the thorns and nails, but the agony of forsakenness. The agony of forsakenness. No higher price could have been paid. And we are called to never cease loving Him and thanking Him for His sacrifice. You see, this is why Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was an agonizing cry of anguish 
There was a desperate cry of separation and loneliness. But it was more than that. It was also a cry of substitution. That's my third point this morning. A cry of substitution. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. This passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 puts it this way. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That one has died for all. In other words, this cry reminds us that Jesus was our substitute. He died for us. He died in our place. You and me, the ones that should have been on that cross, we weren't. And the one who should not have been on that cross, he was. He was there. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says, Christ died for our sins, not for his sins. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is, it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. He was our substitute. We read in Isaiah 53, we read earlier this morning, verse 5, it said, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. With His wounds, we are healed. You see, the truth is, on the cross, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He was a pure offering. He had no sin. So He was able to carry ours. And Christ did that. Christ did that voluntarily. He wasn't forced. He wasn't manipulated. He offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins, once and for all. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's important that we understand this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Scriptures tell us, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that He was made sin? Well, that's an, an amazing statement. But what does it mean? I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. This is very important for us to understand. Or we can miss the whole point of Christ's substitutionary atonement. First of all, let, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. 2 Corinthians here, chapter 5, verse 21, does not mean that Christ became a sinner. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that He committed a sin. It does not mean that He broke God's law. He did not do that. Christ had no capacity to sin. He could not sin. He was the sinless God while He was a human being at the same time. And it's, of course, unthinkable that God would turn His Son into a sinner. The idea of God making anybody a sinner is unthinkable. Never, never mind turning His Son into a, into a sinner. Well, you say... Well, what does it mean then that he was made sin? Well, let's go to Isaiah 53. Let's have a look at Isaiah 53. I think that explains it to us much more clearly. Chapter 4, uh, sorry, Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our sorrows and carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God, Jesus, didn't die for us. He died for us. Sorry, he didn't die for his sins. He died for our sins. He didn't die for himself. He had no sins. What it means is the Lord took all the iniquity of all of us as it fell on his son, Jesus Christ. What it, simply, it just means God treated Christ as if he were a sinner. By making him pay the penalty for sin, though, though he was innocent. He paid the penalty that we deserved. He paid the, the penalty that we deserved. Sin was credited to him as if he had committed it and paid the price. It would be like all the sinners in the world charging all their sin to your credit card and, and you having to pay that bill. This is called imputation. That's the theological word. The guilt of the sins of the whole world would be upon Jesus Christ would be imputed onto Jesus, credited to him as if he were guilty, all of it. And then just as soon as God had credited to him, God poured out the full fury of his wrath against all that sin and all those sinners. And Jesus experienced all of it at once, all of it at once. Never again. Would the priest have to make sacrifices in the temple? Never again would blood have to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Christ was God's one final acceptable sacrifice. And having made that sacrifice, Christ opened the way for us to know God intimately. His being forsaken by God meant we would be accepted by God. God the Father forsook His Son so that He would never have to forsake us. And you know in one sentence that is the answer to Jesus' question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, God the Father forsook, forsook His only Son once for all that He might never have to forsake us, His adopted sons and daughters. Because of the cross, God himself has said to you and to me, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So Jesus was our substitute. He went through darkness so that you might have light. Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. He was condemned so that you might be able to say, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. He suffered hell for us. So that we can enjoy heaven with him. One Christian author and commentator, Arthur Pink, he says, Jesus entered that awful darkness that I might walk in the light. He drank the cup of woe that I might drink the cup of joy. He was forsaken that I might be forgiven. Well, let me conclude this morning by reminding you that Jesus said these words. On the cross, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? So that we wouldn't have to. So that we wouldn't have to. So those very words would never have to be spoken by us. One of the greatest blessings and assurances we have as Christians this morning, for the rest of our lives, is that we are never forsaken by God. We are never forsaken by God. We are never alone. He is always with us. Now, I'm sure many of us today plan to spend Good Friday with our faith families in church and then enjoy lunch together with friends and family. But because of this coronavirus, we can't. Now, let your separation and your isolation today remind you of the cross. Let it remind you of the words of Jesus and the significance of these words Remember the isolation. Remember the separation Jesus had to go through so that you would never have to. Our great high priest, he both sympathizes with us and he intercedes for us. And when we look to Jesus, we're reminded that God loves us and he's working for our good. The cross of Christ is the powerful declaration that God not only sees you, but that he is with you. His fourth saying on the cross shows us that Jesus understands. He knows the pain that we experience. He knows the pain when we are separated from our loved ones. And we can say with the psalmist, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. No matter where I go, God will be with me. Remember that. If you have embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior, remember that truth this morning. Remember that Jesus said these words so that you would never have to. He is our ever-present help. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we have this wonderful privilege of knowing God as our Father. And He promises He will never leave us or forsake us. But if you're listening this morning and you are not a Christian, I urge you to become one today. Now, these words spoken around the very moments of the death of Christ speak to the significance of the cross. Jesus threw open the way to God. Don't look at the cross and, and walk away from it this morning. Believe, repent, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Pray with me this morning. Father, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you for the death of your dear son. We thank you that he was forsaken and judged for our sins so that we who believe won't have to be but instead reconciled to you. Thank you for the timely reminder of your great love for your children. Lord God, make us grateful today. Turn the hearts of who are watching, who have not yet come to the foot of the cross to receive your son Jesus as their Lord and King. Speak to us, Father. Speak to those hearts who do not know the Savior, who have not been reconciled, and draw them to yourself. And we ask that sinners might come today in faith and embrace the righteousness provided for them by the one who bore their sin. So save sinners, Lord, today. Save them. Apply the work of Christ to every life listening today for the sake of your son's 
dear name and for the joy of your people, we pray this prayer. Amen. <laughs>